Welcome to the New Books Network. As has been widely noted, resentment has been very much in vogue as an idea for understanding the roots of contemporary populist rage in the United States, the United Kingdom, and elsewhere. Yet not so long ago, this sort of analysis of extremist politics was not regarded really as you know polite, so to speak, among historians. Former President Barack Obama was excoriated for invoking resentment as an analysis of what was happening on the American right. So what can we say about the role resentment plays in contemporary politics? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Rob Schneider, who is professor of history at Indiana University at Bloomington. He's the author of three books and many articles on early modern France, and most recently of the book, The Return of Resentment, The Rise and Decline and Rise Again of a Political Emotion, published by University of Chicago Press just this year in 2023. From 2005 to 2015, he was editor of the American Historical Review, which is, of course, the flagship journal of the American Historical Association. He's been a visiting fellow at All Souls College and Oriel College at Oxford University and a visiting lecturer in residence uh, on three different occasions at the École des Hautes Etudes en Sciences Sociales in Paris. He has received fellowships uh, from the Simon Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Council on Learned Societies or of Learned Societies, and and the French government, the Bourges Chateaubriand. During the current academic year, he's a visiting scholar in the Department of History at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks for joining us today, Rob Schneider. It's my pleasure to be here. Great to have you. So... You start this book by noting that resentment is a complex emotional phenomenon. Uh, It's related to anger and to indignation, but it's not the same as either. So maybe you could start by explaining, you know, what you think resentment is and why you decided to devote a whole book to addressing its significance. Well, let me address the second part uh, First, you know, the fact is that uh, I have been observing over the period of at least 2016, the, the, the appearance of resentment in op-ed pieces, in uh, uh, headlines, is as a term which seemed to be used as what I would say a kind of off-the-shelf explanation for the phenomenon of the new right, of Trump, of other sorts of phenomena that really are Quite, quite frankly, disturbing to many people and um, and puzzling. And it seemed to me that resentment was used as, like something you would just throw at this and say, oh, yeah, that's that's what they do. That's what they are. That's what explains this. They're just resentful. But it seems to me, and I think this is true for most people who think about this, resentment, uh, and this gets to your, the, the first part of the question, resentment is a complex emotion. 
all emotions are complex and accessing emotions, of course, is a very difficult task. But I think most people would agree, and certainly most moral philosophers and psychologists would agree, that emotions are never just feeling. There's a mix of, of thinking and feeling when it comes to emotion. So already you're dealing with something complex. With resentment, as opposed to, say, fear or hope or anger, I think we're dealing with an emotion that, if you wish, has on balance a little bit more thinking or psychological reflection than just feeling. Indeed, the word, word itself uh, invites uh, the assumption that it's returning to something. So it's not just a matter of feeling, thinking something at the moment, but it's a matter also of cultivating or thinking or mulling over a sort of reaction to things. So the first resentment is particularly uh, complex and therefore deploying it the way it, it has been used rather unthinkingly or casually, I think, invites um, interrogation. What do we mean by emotion, uh, by this emotion, by resentment? Um, I think, too, um, resentment uh, involves not just a sort of sense of being injured, but a moral injury. And I think the uh, rather trivial analogy of, of, say, having someone step on your toe and uh, apologizing. Well, your toe is hurt, but you, you, you accept the apology. If someone, say, then steps on your toe, the physical pain and then fails to apologize, the physical pain is, is, is the same, but it's been compounded by a kind of moral outrage that something has been violated, a certain protocol, a certain requirement that one apologize for an action that is hurtful. And it seems to me that resentment has this component to it. It's not just a kind of injury. It's an injury which has been molded over and which is complexified by a sense of moral outrage. And therefore, I think resentment also then represents a sort of violation of, of expectations. Uh, that we have certain assumptions, a certain set of, of, of expectations, of principles that should not be violated, that should be followed. Uh, and that when these are violated, it's not just a matter of something being, something happening which is harmful. It's a matter of, again, a moral injury. Uh, and here I think the analogy, which uh, I use in the book, which other people have also used, is again the rather trivial one, but it can expand be expanded to the collective experience, is jumping the queue or breaking in line. That is to say, all of us, I think, if we're standing in line for something, we expect that people are going to stand in line and keep to the uh the protocol of one person after another. If someone jumps the queue, that's a violation of a principle, of an expectation. And I think this can be seen on a more magnified level by those people who feel as though uh others have jumped the queue. And again, it's not a matter of endorsing the legitimacy of this, but it's a matter of this is what people think, that immigrants or women or different ethnic groups have been promoted by governments, uh, say, uh, and given preferential treatment over those who are sort of waiting in line. Uh, and, and so I think this is this sort of captures that, that sense of, of, of moral outrage. Finally, I think there's the question of time. Um, Resentment, as I suggested before, implies a sense of returning to something. Ressentir, ressentiment. Um, and there, I think, unlike many emotions, it often uh, dwells on the harm, on the outrage, on the violation. Uh, and therefore, this sense of time is very, very important for, I think, the experience of the emotion, especially on a collective level. Great. Um, so 
a very interesting sort of explication. But I think, you know, most people, and perhaps including me when I first, you know, received your book, uh, think perhaps about uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's uh, analysis of resentment. I mean, he built a whole, I don't know, theory of the modern world or theory of Christianity. I mean, it was a huge, the book always had a huge impact on me, partially because like a lot of the things he says, it's so outrageous <laughs> or it seems so outrageous to kind of make this, this argument about a slave revolt in morals. Um, but you are not, I think, particularly happy with, you know, Nietzsche's use of the term. So I wonder, since that's probably the most familiar thing to most people, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yes. Well, this certainly, I mean, in any discussion of Nietzsche, um, uh, of resentment, Nietzsche looms large. You just can't get around it. And I think this is for good and for not so good reasons. In some ways, it prejudices our sense of what resentment means insofar as he's cast it as an entirely negative emotion or psychological disposition, that it is merely that which inculcates in the masses, in the herd, this slave morality, which is a betrayal of, of the principles of the values that he holds up as being those that at least certain individuals who are extraordinary should follow. That is the idea of strength and heroism and beauty uh, and individualism and the slave morality of those who are resentful is, is the opposite in every respect. So Nietzsche's book, and I mean, it's largely in the genealogy of morality in 1887, but it's it's elsewhere, had a, a determinate influence. And in some sense, it, gets, it pushes us in the direction of seeing it as entirely negative. I should add, and I should have maybe mentioned this earlier, one of the kind of problems with resentment as an emotion is that most people, and I, I want to qualify this by saying most people sort of are not happy to own resentment. It, it immediately puts yourself in the sense of being a victim. And no one really wants to, I think, embrace victim, victimhood uh, voluntarily. So it's got that sort of negative cast, which, of course, Nietzsche both uh, channeled and, and, and expounded and made, uh, made so determinate in some, in some ways in terms of how we think of it. But Nietzsche, you know, uh, fashioned resentment as the, as the morality of the slaves. Now, interestingly, <clears throat> in the book, it really is. Uh, it really unfolds in several steps. I mean, you have the slaves who are, of course, in a, in a situation of being oppressed, and the nobles are their oppressors. Oppressors, but the noble, nobles don't have a bad conscience about it. And that's one of the things that Nietzsche really likes about nobles. They're not. They're not conflicted about at at all. And there's no sense of guilt. There's no sense of self consciousness. They're happy to embrace the position, which, after all, they deserve. They are these Homeric. Uh, uh, figures who are above it all. The slaves, on the other hand, groan under their oppression, but they don't do anything about it, you know, as far as Nietzsche's concerned. Historically, let's be clear, this is not an historical account. It's a myth, a very powerful myth. So they groan under their oppression. They feel resentful. They don't, and they just stew in that. Now, the second part of Nietzsche's analysis, which is often left out, is that what is needed to promote and develop what he eventually calls resentment as a slave morality, what is needed is the priests. They come in and the priests are, it's who are the priests? They're Jewish priests, they're the early Christians. It's again, historically very uh, imprecise, but that doesn't matter to Nietzsche. So along come the priests and they sort of tell the masses, you, you are the oppressed, you are the sufferers, but you will be rewarded. 
uh, elsewhere in heaven or whatever. And moreover, your suffering, your meekness, your passivity, uh, your uh, all of those are virtues. And they lead to not to strength, not to power, not to beauty, but to forgiveness, uh, to mercy, uh, which indeed becomes, of course, Christian morality. So for Nietzsche, um, resentment, the slave morality, the oppression of the slaves, the priests' uh, machinations on the herd, all of this yields a kind of uh, a morality, which he says is really um, is that of the of Western Judeo-Christian civilization. To to, in his mind, lamentable effects, because what we've done is we've betrayed something innately human, at least uh, as he would be, as he would have us be aspirationally, which is not towards meekness and forgiveness and passivity uh, and, and, and the meek inheriting the earth, but rather strength, power, individualism, beauty, and all the values which he sees as being overturned by Christian morality. So it's it's an inversion of values, and Nietzsche is the, the preacher who wants us to recover the values that have been inverted. It's extremely powerful. Uh, and even those who never read Nietzsche, and I think, no, I mean, it's one of these books which I think still read by undergraduates, but even those who don't read him, it's really, it's it's that notion of being a, a negative emotion is, is still there implicitly in the term. Right. I mean, I've always been struck by how bracing and eye-opening reading Nietzsche can be. I mean, as I say, I mean, to some degree, it's so outrageous, the, the sort of argument that he's making, but it clarifies, you know, the world we live in, in this incredibly blinding sort of way, it seems to me. Um, and he's, anyway. You know, it's very uh, seductive. It really is. It's very seductive. I and, think especially for a young person uh, as Nietzsche. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to drag Trump into this yet. I'm sure he's going to get into this discussion. But, uh, you know, there's a way in which that morality that Nietzsche clearly prefers, you know, insofar as uh, Donald Trump embraces really anything, you know, you could sort of see him sort of siding with Nietzsche on this. Anyway, we'll leave that aside. We'll get to it. Um, you know, in the book, you sort of make a distinction between two kind of versions of resentment. Uh, one is the kind of left behind and threatened, you know, worldview that is widely seen as the kind of base of the Trump uh, support. Um, and then you sort of say, well, but there's also a much broader, I mean, let's not blame it all on them or ascribe it all to them. There's also a kind of way in which resentment is, you know, um, an intrinsic part of the modern world in a way. Uh, that the modern world proclaims equality but fails to live up to that reality. And so that there's a kind of resentment in all of us all the time. So I wonder if you could talk about, you know, those two, shall we say, ideal types. Right. I would say rather it's not that necessarily resentment is in all of us, but that it is a potential collective emotion that characterize perhaps the modern world. And, and let me just be clear. I mean, this is uh, um, this is a hypothesis in the book that I think uh, I'll, I'll stand by. <laughs> and I, that is to say, resentment, well, resentment, well, of course, individually is perennial. That is to say, it can't, it's not historically specific. As a collective emotion, and this is my interest in the book, uh, politically and collectively, the sense that the resentment is meaningful and important. It seems to me that in a sort of pre-modern world, you know, before the 18th century or before the early part of the 19th century, however you want to demark the modern world, uh, resentment as a collective phenomenon really 
wasn't something that we're going to see, in part because uh, people did could not presume that they had a claim to be equal to those who were above them. Uh, when you don't have democracy or equality, at least in principle, then while peasants are suffering and they're angry at their feudal lords, they can't really be resentful for them because the lords, in a sense, by right, in terms of the ethos of the period, uh, have pri privilege, which is which are have privileges which are universally acknowledged. Uh, it's only when you have the ethos or the expectation, at least the principles of equality, democracy, when people. As Tocqueville, I think, brilliantly uh, outlined that when there's this aspiration and the expectation of equality that is not met, then you have resentment as a potential, at least, emotion, which can take hold uh, among people individually or more meaningfully here for me, uh, collectively. So uh, I think there's a kind of floor, if you wish, that is to say, uh, uh, resentment, collective feelings of resentment are part of the, say, the inventory of emotions that are part and parcel of the modern world the way they weren't in a pre-modern world. So in that sense, yes, we're all susceptible to, um, uh, to uh, resentment. And increasingly, as, um, as people's expectations uh, are changing and perhaps reflecting finding, being refined insofar it's not just recognition of me, say, as a citizen, equal to you as another citizen, but if, but if I begin or if people begin to say, no, you must recognize me in my particularity, that is, I am of an ethnic group, or I have a certain sexual or gender orientation, or have a certain particular identity, which is which transcends and to me is more profound than just the sort of citizenship that we all share, then you get a sense that, well, if that recognition is not coming, either legally or otherwise from people, I'm going to be resentful because that's who I am. And I have the expectation that you recognize me and my particularity. And that gets into the whole question, the next question of identity politics. I think identity politics, as people from both the right and the left have suggested, is not only incredibly vexing sometimes, but also uh, invites uh, a kind of resentment as a dynamic, which uh, ultimately doesn't really, is, is very difficult to see being resolved. Now, there's that, uh, and there's a more general sense of resentment. When you talk about what I said called the threatened and the left behind, that's when you get the sort of the sharp, uh, some angry kind of resentment that we see part and parcel of, say, the, the, the MAGA movement, uh, that they are, have certain expectations about being, say, white people, uh, white men, uh, and they see around them ways in which both the government and the culture are undermining that, are, being, are unfairly treating them, are demoting them, that their whole sense of who they are in this world who their parents were, who their grandparents were. This is this. The world is changing in a way such that they are being demoted or threatened. And there, I think the resentment is really rather fierce and angry uh, and, and and threatening. Right. Well, this does get us into the complexities of identity politics, and uh, and you raise this as a you know in a particular point in the book uh, when somebody starts talking about white privilege or white supremacy, um, one can at one level understand that as an account of what American society looks like. But at the same time, there are white people who whose experience in the recent past isn't nothing like, you know, one of privilege or God knows supremacy. And so, you know, how much those people constitute the base of the MAGA movement 
I'm not sure we can exactly say, but it certainly seems to be a key part of understanding where this, you know, contemporary right-wing populism in the U.S. and arguably in other places as well, you know, where it comes from. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, um, I'm an historian. I'm not a pundit. Uh, uh, and I speak as an historian who takes a historical set of experiences to bear on on the present because I am also a citizen and a concerned one. But it seems to me that one of the things that um, I, I wrote the book in a sense for is to maybe prompt readers to be a little careful in how they look upon those who are very different in their thinking and their in their orientation, uh, who are who are angry and whose disposition is it's very easy to see it as being merely resentful and unjustly so. Un, that is, they have no reason to be resentful. Uh, and and to sort of write them off, and for whatever you whatever you think about their political posture, it seems that that say calling uh, using the term white privilege in a very casual, indiscriminate way is just sort of pouring salt into into their wounds because we do have a vast number of people in this country who are uh, who are white, uh, who are working class, who have been really uh, abused by the forces of globalization or neoliberalism, however you wanted to describe it, the ways in which if you just travel throughout this country, uh, you see towns that have been emptied by any meaningful industry or work, uh, where a generation before there was a sense of a, of a, of a civic life and an economic life, that the, the drug, the, the current drug problems uh, among those sorts of people, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's a kind of plague. And uh, to sort of say that, oh, they, they have, there's no basis to their grievance. They're merely psychologically sort of twisted. To see them as merely acting out symptoms is to, I think, uh, write them off. And I think those who have a sort of liberal disposition are often guilty of a kind of, you know, of an elitism, which is very condescending about them. Uh, that, that really, I mean, literally, it, it frames these people as living in flyover country. And, you know, that very metaphor of flyover you're looking down on these people who are after all citizens and they vote and they again while there's this is complicated by the racism and the xenophobia and the sexism which is often part of that culture or those those people's dispositions it's still uh i think we can draw a line between uh seeing them as being you know wrong ideologically or politically and yet understanding where they're coming from and having some sense of sympathy of the forces which have impinged upon them in a very profound way. Uh, so I, 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 I wrote this book in a sense to help people, to try to get people to think differently uh, and carefully about how we ascribe emotions to people who we, most cases, don't even know. They've been represented to us through the media often in very, very um, problematic ways. Um, but um, the, the, you know, I I, I think um, you know it's a matter of of people are in this country. Many of them feel as though they've been got, got given a, a raw deal, and as resentful. And this is, I think, part of what we see with resentment. They often see the wrong sorts of forces or the wrong sorts of people as the enemy, just as the Germans saw the Jews as uh, being the, the, the conspirators who were un, undoing the German nation and its, and its prospects. So people see immigrants or African-Americans or women uh, as being the enemy, whereas in fact, it's uh, other forces, I think, that are social and economic that have upended their lives. And so I think we have to sort of understand 
what resentment often fosters in terms of a misdirection of what really uh, is the source of difficulties here. Right. I mean, I don't know how much we want to get into this, but, you know, to some extent, my own view of this is that this is partially a product of the fact that identity politics tends to be a kind of elite phenomenon. And the idea of class, which used to be part of this trinity of race, class and gender, has largely disappeared. And so there's no kind of, there's no room, there's no place in that uh, image of the, uh, in that critique of the United States uh, for the guy in Akron who's, you know, factory packed up and went to Mexico or Korea or whatever the Brazil, whatever the place was. And you can now roll a bowling ball down the, you know, main street of Akron and not hit a thing. And so, um, you know, there's something a little bit, uh, you know, short-sighted and self-regarding, in effect, uh, of this way of thinking about the world. And I think we need to get beyond it. I mean, again, it's not, it's very difficult to parse these things, because I think, as you point out, identity politics tends to be inward-looking. And as people also pointed out, doesn't easily lead to a productive form of politics, which joins up with other people who feel oppressed or left out. Um, nevertheless, identity is a fact. And identity politics and people's identities as they have developed through the cultivation of rights uh, and the evolution of our culture, especially in the direction of sexuality and gender, and what that fosters in terms of identity, these are facts that have to be dealt with. I mean, we just can't wish that people would not be invested in identity politics. It's something that has got to be joined up in some meaningful way uh, with a politics which is broader based. That's that's the trick here. I don't know what the instruments of that um, move would be, but it seems to me that we're going to get out of this impasse. We've got to do that. And you're right. It tends to be elite. It tends to be university based or academic and of course, therefore, easy target for those who want to uh, take advantage of it and exploit it. Right. So you you also say uh, in the book that, or you suggest that the uh, the culture wars are kind of partially a generational conflict, and that there's resentment among you know younger would be academics who are finding it difficult to you know get a foothold in the academic job market. Uh, for reasons that have nothing to do with us hanging around, but that have to do with, uh, you know, the the, the decline in uh, college level enrollments, I mean, demographic reasons and, you know, lack of funding of uh, public higher education uh, by state legislatures. Uh, but, you know, it's true that I, you, you know, we are kind of hanging around, you know, from the perspective of somebody who can't get a job, we're beyond our sell-by date, perhaps. So I wonder if you could talk about, you know, how you see that. Well, let me just back up and say, I think the generational conflict uh, has a longer tail to it in the sense that, you know, part of what people are still reacting to, that is those who feel threatened, uh, mostly sort of white people, middle class and working class people, is the still um, manifesting results of the 60s and the cultural revolutions, which in fact have never has never ended, especially in terms of, of, of gender, representation, identity, and sexuality, that people, uh, and they see Hollywood as the purveyor of this, uh, that, that this cult, these, these sorts of cultural manifestations 
threaten everything they hold dear. That is the sacrality of the family, gender roles in our tradition, community, church, uh, uh, the religion, all of these things which people find as meaningful in their lives. They see the cultural transformations from the 60s and everything that I think defines in many ways the let's say, our urban popular culture as being highly uh, noxious to their way of, of being. And that, and that, I think, is a friction point which breeds resentment. Uh, when you come to uh, the, uh, a further generational conflict, as you say, I think we're dealing not only in terms of academia, but perhaps a whole, a whole generation beyond academia of, of people my, my daughter's age, and they're uh, you know, around 30 years old, uh, who are educated, who are ambitious, but they find in terms of housing, in terms of positions, in terms for many of them, fortunately my daughters don't have this problem, uh, student debt, They've got a raw deal, and the expectation that they would match, let alone surpass, their parents' level uh, of economic well-being, that this is now something that they no longer can count on. I think one of the things that at least we celebrate <laughs> as, as another myth in America is social mobility, social advancement, that we will do better than our parents. And, and indeed, for the post-war generation, I think certainly my parents who grew up uh, as children in the Depression uh, and benefited from the post-war boom, uh, they certainly did better than their parents, who actually did fairly well, even as immigrants. Uh, and yet now I think the people who are younger, that notion, uh, and, and it's, it, goes, it goes up and down the social scale, that the sense of, of improvement, of advancement, of mobility is been has been undermined. And the prospects are very, very slim, except for a, a narrow and narrowing elite. Uh, and even for them, I mean, people who become doctors and lawyers, I mean, if you talk to people who are going into those professions now, they're, they're largely corporate, often in their organization. They have no control often over what they do. Again, too, there's a sense that their aspirations and expectations have been disappointed. And I think this is, this insofar as this is a broad-based phenomenon, uh, it doesn't bode well for the sense of, of optimism, of growth, that we've always celebrated as being central to the American ethos, uh, even though you know, disappointment runs throughout our history and indeed is a part of existential life. Let's not get ourselves. So I think we're dealing with an, an effects moment. And disaffection clearly is something that is that is endemic. Well, maybe this kind of brings us to a last question, which you know was one of the things in the book that intrigued me. Uh, and that is the kind of you know, your observation of the sort of positive side of resentment, of its productive side, of its, you know, future orientation, of its aspiration to do better than, you know, that which is resented. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that uh, as we close. Yeah, yeah that, that was the surprise for me because I came into the book, the whole project, thinking about Trump and other aspects of of resentment as a negative phenomenon. And I I discovered that moral philosophers and others had in fact been suggesting another way of looking at resentment. In a sense, um, you know, we could say it's like James Scott's, uh, one of the instruments of the weak. I mean, what do people who are left behind or otherwise uh, discarded or excluded or oppressed, what do they have but their sort of anger but here it's seen as a resentment. That is to say, uh, don't pass me by. Don't ignore me. Ignoring me, passing me by, uh, moving forward without addressing my grievances. This is something that we deeply resent. 
And I think the, the emblematic figure to this, and there are many, but the one who's most arresting in his writings is Jean Lamarie, uh, who was a Holocaust survivor, a member of the resistance. He was tortured. He was imprisoned in Auschwitz, and he became a writer of some repute in Europe in the post-war era. Uh, he left Germany, uh, lived in Belgium, but he observed Germany in the 60s as really what he saw just moving on. The people were just, you know, decided that uh, what, what their fathers had done under the Nazi period, that was done and that's over with. And now they're experiencing this industrial boom and, and economic well-being and uh, this <laughs> upset Amory. And he wrote this article, long essay called Resentiment. And he said, I'm going to hold up a finger of resentment. Uh, and he acknowledged, I'm going to be irritating because I'm going to tell you, you can't move on. You, you can't, you move on and you uh, fundamentally uh, uh, violate something that uh, you ignore our grievances, you ignore, you ignore our harm. Uh, and it was, it's a powerful essay. And I think that sort of uh, holding up this finger of resentment uh, is something that we have seen and other people observe, have observed, for example, in truth and reconciliation tribunals in South Africa, um, in indigenous communities in North America and New Zealand and elsewhere, where in fact uh, there is there's on the one hand, and this is something Bishop uh, Tutu announced, he said, we must move towards forgiveness, that we cannot have any sort of closure without forgiveness. And yet there were people who had been tortured uh, and, and harmed fundamentally said, no, we're not going to rush, you're not going to rush to forgiveness so quickly. In order to get to forgiveness, you we have to forgive you, and we are uh, using this deploying our resentment. It's a kind of irritant. It's not attractive necessarily, but we're using it as an instrument to thwart your rapid move towards resentment without acknowledging our grievances. And there, I think again, it is an instrument of the weak. So we can see resentment, which again from from Nietzsche and otherwise, is often seen as unappealing, unattractive, just merely irritant, a complaint, a symptom. And uh, here it's rather seen as productive to force others to address the moral harms that have been committed. Uh, and without, without that, without addressing, without acknowledging those harms, moving forward is, is uh, fraud. And so it was really interesting to see how moral philosophers, philosophers of various sorts have cultivated that and, and, and shown how this, in fact, resentment has many different shades and degrees and measures of, ex of expression and purposefulness beyond what we see, say, in Nietzsche or in our common vernacular notion of resentment. Right. Well, I mean, I think one might argue that uh, Amery ended up being the winner of that argument, and you know, there was so much attention now, and in, in the suddenly in the post-war period, to this idea of coming to terms with the past. I mean, on a, somewhere I wrote about this, and I said, "We are all Germans now." Yeah, you know, there's right. a way in which we all have blood on our hands, and we have to, you know, are pressed by various forces to come to terms with those pasts. And uh, in any case, I, I guess I never thought about it so much as resentment driven, but 
you know, there's surely something to that. So, well, thanks very much. Uh, uh, I want to bring this episode to a close. I want to thank Rob Schneider for his insights into the idea of resentment and its significance in contemporary politics. Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank the very well-dressed Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Mm-hmm.